John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 928.IS0117, certificate number 24126, The Phantom of New Guinea. The first phantom rescued the Falu from their ship. They shared the secret of their magic health elixir, and the phantom vowed to protect the Falu from all Earthmen who might want to steal the elixir and to keep the Falu's location a secret. You're the Phantom of New Guinea. <laughs> Your mom's the Phantom of New Guinea. <laughs> I guess we're both on the record as being fans of um, the, the comic page as kids. Do you? Oh, the Phantom. Do you have any history with the Phantom? Oh, I, I, I didn't I, know this was going to be such a rich vein of Rodrickiana. I loved the Phantom. So he this was... is going to be first an hour of you talking about your childhood <laughs> with the Phantom, apparently. No, but you know there there were always on the comic page a few soap operas, a few dramas, Mary Worth. Comics that you kind of, and then we're talking about in the old days, right? By the 80s, a lot of that stuff had been cycled out, but or ver- by the 90s. But very few daily adventure strips. Right. But The Phantom was was the kind of soap opera for boys. We only had Spider-Man in, in, the, uh, in my childhood paper, The Pacific Stars and Stripes. We did not Our have- Our fighting men and women get uh, Spider-Man, but, Spider-Man. Not, but not The Phantom. Spooderman. We did not have Spider-Man in our comic pages, first in the Seattle Post-Intelligencer or the Seattle Times. You had to watch Electric Company if you wanted Daily Spider-Man. The Electric Company. Da, da, da. 50 years old this week as we record this, by the way. And then in the Anchorage Daily News and the Anchorage Times, also no Spider-Man. But the Phantom did appear, and I followed the Phantom's that, adventures. We all know that kids in the 70s loved the Phantom more than Spider-Man. If there's one thing I remember about popular culture, it was Phantom Mania. Yeah, no, you had to get Spider-Man in the, in the comic book form, but... But um, but yeah, no, you know the Phantom was pretty self serious. It wasn't a ton of, there wasn't even the the humor that Batman is famous for. <laughs> uh, but it was kind of you know it was kind of a little bit like Tintin in the Congo sometimes. Sure, he's in a he's in kind of a, a hazily defined tropical setting, right? Getting up to kind of hazily defined adventures against smugglers and like a kind of bad guy you're not sure if they actually exist. Gun right. runners and and whatnot. Right. The, but if it wasn't for those meddling kids, they would have gotten away with it. Or in this case, the Phantom. Yeah, he's the meddling kids. But he was also in a head to toe body, you know, like lycra bodysuit with a mask. Did not they, good tropical wear. Did they? Have I can speak from experience. <laughs> you've tried that. <laughs> oh yeah. You you've worn your um, your Spider Man suit into the jungles the first of four Costa years, Rica. Yeah, the first four years uh, as an adult that I spent in Maui, ever, the whole time I was wearing a lycra bodysuit head and, to toe and fighting crime and fighting crime. Uh, the people of Hawaii still thank me. Did you know this? Is, that's the Phantom's great innovation: is that he wore a skin tight bodysuit. That was not a thing before the Phantom? No, apparently The Phantom goes back, not. right? To the 30s or something? Yeah, the Phantom was first published in 1936. And he came from this um, legacy of pulp heroes doing, um, you know, uh, heroic work to dastardly evildoers in the shadows, you know, yeah. like the, the spider or the shadow, or the shadow, for example. Well, or, and he also had the Lone Ranger's mask. It's almost exactly the Lone Ranger's mask. These are the two innovations of the Phantom. You've really honed in hmm, on what you. it is that makes the Phantom so uh, so omnibus uh, relevant. <laughs> <laughs> he, nobody before him had a, had a skin-tight bodysuit. 
Okay. You know, they all had uh, what raincoats and and floppy brimmed hats. I guess <laughs> right. Uh, six guns. And there were characters before him with masks. You know, famously the Lone Ranger and Zorro. But I don't know if I don't know if that's a visual thing. I think at this time in the mid '30s, those are both. Like pulp magazine article, short story, and radio, radio serials. Yeah. Now, now wait a minute. What is, does the Phantom predate Superman? He does. What? Yeah, Superman. I think is what thirty eight or thirty nine. Oh. Action number one is a couple of years later, and it's clear that that's the lineage from these pulp heroes to these guys who are not skulking in the shadows, dropping crates on on uh, opium <laughs> traders or whatever, <laughs> right? but who are actually like wearing kind of skin tight, brightly colored stuff and uh, in many cases wearing masks kind of these domino mask things with or you know around the back of the head blindfold type masks with um eye holes and no pupils the phantom also has no pupils oh um oh right of like, course the like ma- summer vacation yeah it's got it's some kind of what would it be made of not sun. it's not sunglasses it's not mirrors it's right just an, an op- opaque screen and there's still kind of an uncanny valley no matter who plays batman you watch the trailer and you're like there's something about this guy. Oh, right. He's wearing like black grease paint around his eyes. Yeah. Because the the comic convention of these guys having eyeless masks just looks weird when you try to dramatize it. Yeah. Right. Oh, Batman doesn't have eyes in the original Batman comics? Well, he has eyes, but he doesn't have like... Pupils. Irises and pupils. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, the black they're, they're grease like paint thing slits. around Michael Keaton's eyes or whatever, it was always very off-putting to me. Well, also, it's impossible because you see him just pull on the mask. Right. Where'd that circle of black grease paint come from, Michael mm-hmm. Keaton? Like, you uh, you maybe. know, you told me the truth in Mr. Mom, maybe, <laughs> and the Dream Team, but what's going on now? Maybe inside the mask, there's like, it, it, yeah. he just smears it with black grease paint every time. If there's these little windshield wipers where he puts it on and they go <laughs> under his eye. So you read the Phantom's Adventures every day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As part of the as part of the comics. I mean, I we've talked about before, but I read every comic I could get my hands on. My daughter has picked up the mantle. Um, there's no comic that she won't read, and she even goes further than I did. And reads Fritz the Cat. No, no I read hate. Fritz the Cat. <laughs> I read Hate. No, she reads The Silver Surfer and all those. You know, super. You didn't uh, read all the trippy Stan Lee ones. No, the Stan Lee ones were just so. The trippy ones were just too trippy for me. I was like, I'm a good kid. I don't. I don't know what Doctor Strange is. <laughs> yeah, no. I don't know what he's smoking. <laughs> I mean, give me Sergeant Rock. Give me the you know the the Lost Platoon or whatever. But no, I don't know that stuff. Do you know where I was right before I came here? I I got my uh, I got my COVID booster, and then across the street there's this weird old comic store in Burien that only has weird old comics. Yeah, that, and that guy you is weird. You know weird. that place, right? Oh, he's a weirdo. He's very weird. But uh, and, I needed, And I hear sexist. I think probably worse than that. He had a long tirade about how he won't go in Safeway anymore because uh, the homeless shoplift there. And he can't... He can't abide He can't it. support a company that doesn't shoot the homeless on site. <laughs> I, I've Maybe heard, we shouldn't be identifying this guy so clearly on this, <laughs> on this podcast that, with a mass audience. But. That, when, that when young women go into the store to find comic books, he's like, what are you doing in here? Girls don't like comic books. Oh, man. That's the, that's the, uh, that's the comic store owner of my youth. I know. But <laughs> I thought it was gone. No, it's the comic book store owner of The Simpsons, right? Or, yeah. I mean, no, well, he's but I, but I think guy. those are all based on... Like every store I went into as a kid to look for some Spider-Man back issue I'd missed had one of those guys yeah. who looked and sounded exactly like- What are you doing in here? The Simpsons guy. You don't love comics. But I was in there because it's the, um, as we record, this is the end of October and we always put out, we give out candy, but we also just have a table with a bunch of old quarter comics, you know? Oh. And kids will be like, oh, wow, Batman. You know, kids are so excited when they see <laughs> crap old comics, even <laughs> though these kids would never, they don't own a comic. Um, so my daughter got into my comic book collection and well, she I, already had a room of archies and tintin she did but i you know i was not somebody that kept like kept my comics pristine sure they're just a big box full of every kind of comic and a lot of them date back to the 60s because even when i was a kid i was getting other people's used comics and i'd kept them you know and i kept them pretty clean and she just tore through those they're just comic book pages everywhere in the house i'm like hey that was a that wasn't worth anything, but you know, it made it this far in life, and she just she literally consumed them. Uh, in the future, you know, the people are the listeners are probably very happy. The slugmen are happy to hear about this scarcity that your daughter helped impose on their own collection of twentieth century right um, ephemera. It's you know, the- like every time a every time a copy of. <laughs> of cloak and dagger from nineteen seventy four gets ripped up, their value goes up. It's like when uh, Pete Townsend 
broke so many 63 SGs in the course of his guitar smashing years that they became Is that true? more like incredibly scarce cuz he just everywhere he went he was like one more 63 SG break it you know SG junior or whatever broke it on stage and now that you know find one one man campaign yeah. so then there is hope for somebody who just wants to go around the country um smashing uh, 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 Mulan collectible plates yeah. in hopes that someday... That was Goldfinger's plan. <laughs> like, That's right. How did you know about my Mulan plate smashing? <laughs> oh, does, your daughter hasn't found those yet. No, she, she'll never find them. They're all in a dumpster. I uh, So the fandom is kind of the missing link between the pulps and the superheroes that, that you know every actual living person remembers. Uh-huh. But you and I remember the Phantom. I, don't, I never read the newspaper strip, but he had a short-lived um, 1980s saturday morning cartoon show i remember it too king feature syndicate i think for decades has kind of labored under the misapprehension that the rising generation will love uh mandrake the magician or whatever if they're just given the chance you know (laughs) right (laughs) i i think that by 1980 whatever my uh saturday morning cartoon days were over sure i was you were listening to judas priest by then yeah um i had i had purchased the uh led zeppelin coda uh vinyl <laughs> it's for so, the same day you were like should i watch pound puppies or hey what's this <laughs> it kind of was you know coda came out and it was for sale at cars grocery on northern lights boulevard in a just a little you know they only had 17 vinyl records in the grocery store i just want to say for a second that northern lights boulevard sounds like a fake street name that you would invent if you had never been to alaska it does northern lights boulevard and benson are the two main uh east west streets in midtown and northern lights goes west and benson goes east this is the second time we've talked about alaska street addresses anchored street addresses on the show recently well anyway that cars had coda and i bought it I, I was not aware that John Bonham had died. I didn't know anything about Led Zeppelin. No one in Alaska knew yet. But it, the, the slide right. with the news was still months away. <laughs> but it was like one of those records was like five ninety nine or something, uh, and it wasn't a complete album if, if I recall. Yeah. But I you know I put it on, and then that record's got some jams, although it, it didn't uh, it wasn't well reviewed at the time. It was no presence. Well, while you were listening to the worst. Led Zeppelin record. I was still watching uh, Plastic Man right. on uh, Como or whatever. So do you and remember the Phantom t- uh, cartoon? Yeah, so there was a cartoon called Defenders of the Earth, which sounds very grandiose, but really it's just who does um, King Feature Syndicate have the rights to? So it was like, what if the Phantom teams up with Mandrake the Magician and Flash Gordon? These characters that all all um, Gen X kids loved. <laughs> were they trying to, they were just trying to compete with super friends. Exactly. They were trying to compete with actual IP that people liked. Yeah. So, uh, Marvel and DC superheroes. So these guys would, uh, oh, and also uh, Mandrake the Magician's, um, you know, what started out as his uh, problematic native servant, Lothar, uh-huh. but is now kind of a nobler figure on the on this cartoon. And so I watched this and I was kind of, I could kind of tell, you know what, this is old timey stuff. Because there, there were also Tarzan and um, Lone Ranger. That were part of this group? I think they were, they must have been sold to the same network in the same rights block or something. Because they were really trying to, uh, they assumed that all kids just loved the, the IP of the 1940s. Right. And, Johnny Weissmuller. Uh, and these things were kind of animated. They all had the Japanese, you know, directors and animation houses. So they, you know, they actually had, you know, they looked better than... Um, Speed Racer. Yeah, the Littles or, you know, whatever the American show oh, right. before it was. Um, so they were action packed and that's the first time I ever saw this purple clad jungle dweller, but it was, I didn't understand the Phantom's mythos because he's teaming up with a, a sci-fi, um, adventurer and a, uh, whatever Mandrake is an, an old, an old time, right there in the an name. old timey Satanist. <laughs> basically. <laughs> this is what kids want. Satanists, retro astronauts and, uh, uh, jungle opium, uh, fighters. It's true that the Phantom was purple. You know, oh yeah, you never did you ever see the Sunday strip? Well, I did, but you know, the the daily strip kind of is the is the plays a larger role in my mind. But yeah, on, on the Sunday strip he's like plum colored or even purpler depending on what the Anchorage Daily News had in their ink uh, stores right, that some, day. That, that muddy color of overlapping um blue and red and maybe some yellow dots. The um yeah, the Marvel and DC uh convention then is now is that superheroes wear primary colors right and you know if you see somebody in green and purple it's because they're a little more uh tangential or 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 something more nuanced about them like the hulk is green and purple for example but so but so are the real bad guys dr doom and lex luthor used to wear green and purple 
um, the Joker, obviously. Yeah, if you think about green and purple, that's really uh, that. Those are villain colors. Look down right now, futurelings. If you're wearing secondary colors, um, that's you're evil. That's right. how you know. You're, I'm just, you're, you're some kind of sociopath and you have no idea. Like most American men, I am wearing blue on blue. Yeah, I'm wearing blue. Oh, look at my shirt. It's red and blue. It's red, white, and blue because I love America, but also oh, checks mix. It says checks mix. How cute. It's actually red, yellow, and blue because it's got a little corn checks. Did you get that at Hot Topic or Target or something? I, <laughs> I, I, no. I was at Target the other day and they were selling all these t-shirts from my childhood. I've seen that. That were that all look weathered. They're, they're and, pre-distressed. Yeah. yeah. It's like, wow, this is an old Star Wars poster. Wait. Yeah. No, it's not. People just, they put dots on the edges. No, this I actually got sent to me by Ralston Purina because of my deep love for Chex oh, Mix. Nice. So I'm a Kentucky Colonel, but of, of Party Mix. You said something on Twitter and they were like, we love you, Ken Jennings. Here's a free t-shirt. Yes. Did they send you Chex Mix? Uh, they did. They sent me one of every kind of Chex Mix, oh, wow. including some I'd never seen. Wow. I, I don't think I dreamed this. Yeah, it was really like marshmallow white chocolate checks mix, and I'm like, that sounds terrible, but I've never seen this. And it, was, and it was some color that doesn't exist. And when I opened it, it smelled like my grandparents' house as a kid. Hello, it was a weird. Uh, you walked a weird through a door. <laughs> Did they have curry flavored checks mix? And no, they didn't have like the Japanese, like what you. That's what you would want, right? Yeah. Ma- matcha and curry <laughs> checks mix, and uh, right. No, it was all wasabi Chex Mix. It was all kind of regional. It was like, ah, now I have the South Carolina only Chex Mixes. This mm, is dear. exciting. The, uh, what was I even talking about? Who knows? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Primary colors. Yeah. The Phantom's purple is what I'm saying. Yes. Purple and green. Oh, no. He's got no green. He's just purple. Um, he, uh, and the other way I know about the Phantom, speaking of trying to make 40s IP catch on with kids, do you remember this weird time in the 90s when, um, the biggest hit movie ever was Tim Burton's Batman. Yep. And in all, in all reasonability, that should have started the superhero movie boom. That's when everybody should have been like, all right, time to roll out Spider-Man and X-Men and let's get this party started. How interesting. It did it not happen. It didn't happen. Why, Ken? For, for a decade, it did not happen. No. What was the thing that actually sparked the superhero movie craze? Well, Iron I mean, Man? No, I think it's like X-Men and Spider-Man, the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man coming out around 2000, and both of those were... Oh, it was X-Men. Pretty good. I mean, X-Men was the first superhero movie in like maybe 10 years. I'm going to get corrections about this because there's probably some Blade movie I'm forgetting. Yeah. But as far as like... I heard heard the other day Blade was a vampire that could uh, be out in the day. That's correct. Wow. How have you lived your life not to... Alaska has not found out that Blade's a vampire (laughs) that can be... Oh, you guys don't have day there. No, it wasn't. (laughs) It wasn't that. It was just that Blade came out during a period of my life when I was much more interested in in finding cheap crank. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> on the street than I was in watching uh, movies. People tried out. to tell you about Blade and you assumed it was a street dog and were I, very, I very like, interested. How do I get a hold of Blade? Get some Blade. Um, yeah, so you'd think the 90s would have just been a boom in superhero movies after those Batman movies made a uh, hundred bajillion dollars. Right. But I think Marvel had already sold the rights to a lot of their heroes to just TV companies and TV networks and fly-by-night small film outfits, independent film outfits. Yeah, isn't that weird that there was <clears throat> there was a time? Well, I guess yeah, there was most of our young lives. Nobody thought of intellectual property quite in the same way, right? It was like the car designs of the '60s. You made a really cool-looking right. car, and then two years later, you had to make a completely new cool-looking car. Disney was the only place. Like I remember, you know, even back then, you'd go to. I mean, today you'll go to Disneyland and they'll play "Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf" during the fireworks, and you're like. Sweet, the biggest hit of 1933. Thank you. <laughs> but they, you know, they've been very good at finding a way to keep that alive in each succeeding generation. There's still Davy Crockett canoes at Disneyland, and yet not but, the but Song no, of the South. <laughs> weird. No, there's a big Song of the South ride. <laughs> Weirdly, from the 80s. But you're right. Nobody else was really like, how do we, you know, longitudinally keep people interested in Captain America? Which I'm sure is a, a meeting a week at Disney today. Well, what they did is they had comic books where Captain America fought hippies. <laughs> like, you know manson they, they were always trying to fight Manson. check it out wonder woman's got bell bottoms and a job <laughs> did we just blow your mind so the 90s the time when these movies should have been coming out um only in- 90s kids will remember this. <laughs> 90s kids will probably remember this instead what they did is they c- kept putting out these movies of um i guess they were under the impression that what people liked about batman was like it was like a noir take on on 30s on like world war ii era pulps right so instead there was like a dick tracy movie that cost more than batman and a rocketeer movie and 
the Shadow movie with Alec oh, Baldwin. Weird. And of uh, course, they're all connected, aren't they? That Dick Tracy movie was terrible. I kind of like the weird colors of it. Yeah, you, that, that was L- the- look down. If you're wearing yellow and blue, you might be Dick Tracy. <laughs> is your watch talking to you? <laughs> you're right. It did. Well, so is that because the people that were running those studios were were the... Maybe they were old. Yeah. Were they all the 70-year-olds that... Yeah, you know what the kids want. <laughs> we'll bring back Dick Tracy, the crime fighter. <laughs> you, I mean, they, they did the research, and yeah. uh, if Batman's big... They went to the golf club and said, what do you want to see in movies? And really, you ask any kid, and they just would have been like, Spider-Man! Yeah. Or, uh, you know, Wonder Woman! But instead, we got... Uh, Alec Baldwin as the shadow and no less than Billy Zane as the phantom. Did you ever see the phantom movie? I didn't. It was just one of these generic um, kind of post Tim Burton Batman movies where he skulked in the shadows and, you know, had a, was it set in the thirties? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the thing about the phantom, yeah, I think it was all these were, you know, I think cause the, the retro art deco, for some reason, people thought the Art Deco Gotham City was what people loved about Batman. Well, it's interesting. We've talked on the show before about the Deco revival of the 80s. Mm. And maybe, you know, the Deco revival was part of that Miami Beach uh, fascination, The you know, the um, which all came from Pablo Escobar and the cocaine wow. insanity. For me, Don Johnson. <laughs> but, you know, Pablo Escobar by way of Don Johnson. But, you know, that it was like, why are we thinking about Miami now? Well, it's because of, uh, of you know, the kind of Cuban vibe that was down there in the late 70s. Well, and But instead of Cuban sandwiches, we just got sports teams with teal logos. Yeah, I know. It was Ugh. a terrible time. But yeah, so Deco, but, it, but it's really interesting if you can actually draw a through line between... You know, from Pablo Escobar to, to, <laughs> to Billy, uh, Zane, Billy Zane as Phantom. Um, punching, uh, I don't know, gun runners. It must just be the, it must just be the 50 years later thing or the, the 40 years later thing where every yeah. 40 years you look back for source material. Parenthetically, why can I not think of who else Tintin fights? There's, uh, there's always opium traders and, uh. Gun runners. Who are the other generic baddies of that time? Well, the, the they're guy, just smugglers and Chinese junks. Uh, the, no, the guys that wanted to uh, invade the moon, right? The 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 scientists who wanted to steal the moon. But generally, these things have lower stakes. Like Doctor Doom really wants to blow up a, 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 a some kind of a, a posmium bomb in the middle of Manhattan and turn everyone into robots or something. But right. like in in these things, they always have much less grandiose schemes i mean it's not quite like superman where he's he's just going up against two guys that want to rob a bank which well, doesn't seem fair tintin was only an investigative journalist yeah there's, so there's from no ma- belgium so there's no mad scientists <laughs> the, 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 right. i mean i'm not a belgian reporter but i assume you rarely go after a good mad scientist or a castle or if there is a mad scientist some law enforcement gets pulled in at a certain point and Tintin is no longer like spearheading the investigation. That would be very funny if at the beginning of every Tintin book, Interpol is like, hey, why don't you stand down? I know you have your own apartment, but you look about 11. You, you we'll co- take it from here, You kid. collect model ships. We'll go after the uh, the cigars of the pharaohs. Are the whatever. Nazis trying to steal the Ark of the Covenant? Well, there's one Tintin book that actually has a slave trade. The Red Sea Sharks actually has a slave trade, but I assume they stayed out of that in the Phantom newspaper strip. Yeah, no, I guess you're right. I don't. Well, I mean, didn't everybody? Didn't all the 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 locals in um, in the Phantom have bones through their noses? I mean, wasn't it? Yeah. So there are some racial. Uh, there's some problematic racial depictions to talk about here. I mean, the Phantom Hard newspaper strip dates back to a cartoonist named Lee Falk, um, born in 1911, like a a St. Louis kid who headed to New York to try to make his name and. Um, in order to try to get a job, you know, writing for the pulps or the comics or whatever, claimed he had been a world traveler. And I've seen Tibet and I've seen Tahiti. And really, he just read National Geographic like every kid that age. Right. Um, but it worked. Like his his lies about his his world travels got him a job. And so he creates this jungle, uh, this, um, you know, jungle crusader, the Phantom, for the comics syndicates. And uh, How did the Phantom, because the Phantom was a, was an Anglo. Yeah, so the Phantom is the ghost who walks, and he is not the fir- first Phantom. The um, the Phantom is the 21st Phantom, I believe. Our Phantom is Kit Walker, but he's a direct descendant of Christopher Walker, who in fifteen on a 1536 voyage for Drake, I don't know. Do the dates work out? You know, some English sailor um, is uh, waylaid by pirates and washes ashore, as often happens in uh, adventure fiction of this period. Washes ashore... Um, on the heretofore 
unknown uh, locale of Bengala, which has a very you know Indian subcontinent sounding name. It's got Bengal right there. Mm-hmm. It's like Sentinelese. Yeah, exactly. Sentinel Island. And early on, the setting is very much kind of a melange of a Malaysia, Sumatra, India kind of a vibe. Um, were you looking up Drake's dates? I was, yeah. Um, so now you just bought tickets to Drake. Good job. I did. I was like, whoa, all these different places in on uh, on Drake Boulevard. In fact, my best friend in high school lived on uh, on Drake. Are we back to Alaska Streets? Uh, yeah, that was that's the third one. Um, yeah, so you know, fifteen forties. Oh yeah, so perfect. Yeah. So he's he's from that era of uh, the English circumnavigations of the globe. But our man washes ashore. Um, on Bengala. Bengala. Uh, Falk's very interested in, you know, what he's read in the sensationalized press and fictions about, you know, Indian death cults and the the, the thugs, the tuggies or, or whatever. And all this stuff was, I'm sure, really heightened for Western audiences. But he loved that kind of stuff. So that was where he originally set the phantom. Um, it's in interesting. A, in, in a subcon- Indian subcontinent locale menaced by um, evil uh, locals. It's interesting that uh, they had so little idea of genetics at the time that the 21st phantom of Bengala could still be white <laughs> after 21 Bengalese grandmothers. Well, our phantom is, uh, his love interest is one Diana Palmer, a former nurse Olympic diver turned um, United Nations uh, Health Council bigwig. Right. So maybe circumstances have uh, arranged for a, a beautiful white lass to wash ashore on the shores of Bengala every 30 years <laughs> since, since the 16th century <laughs> to maintain the yeah. phantom's pearly whiteness. Cause this is really a, you know, a pro, a, you know, really a prototypical kind of white savior narrative where, um, you know, even if there's not slavering, um, villains of color, there's the local pygmy tribe that rescues him, the Bandar. Right. And, uh, and of course, they think that he's the same immortal phantom who w- washed ashore hundreds of years ago. Um, and they keep finding uh, finding damsels in distress washed on the beach and bringing them. <laughs> hey, look to what the we phantom. found! <laughs> you like these blonde ladies, right? Or at least you did thirty years ago. The other one's getting kind of old, but you're not. The um, yeah. So even if the depictions are um, not negative of the of his native friends, yeah, it's very much a. Uh, and and the locale kind of moves over the years. It um, Bengala by the sixties is pretty firmly an African nation. Whoa! So it's even more like um, you know these uh, people of the dark continent, right? More so than a, a quasi Asian setting. Is it a thing where Sri Lanka became Ceylon and then it soon became Madagascar? I almost think it was a time when white. Newspaper comic readers didn't care if this was India or Africa. Like, oh yeah, one of them places. One of the places that hangs down from Russia. Uh, yeah, or to them, one of the places where the skin color is different. Right. Probably is it's, more it's the overriding. It's a dulap, a dulap of Asia. <laughs> the dulaps of Asia. You think Africa is a dulap of Asia? I mean, if you don't know your maps very well, uh, the Phantom lives in Skull Cave on in the deep jungle woods oh, of, of Bengal. It looks like a. It looks like a skull. Yeah. It does. Must have been pretty sweet for the first guy to be like, I'm going to live there. <laughs> Coda by Led Zeppelin's going to come out soon. This rules. I wonder if it influenced the mask in the first place. Wow, I live in Skull Cave. I ought to yeah, dr- exactly. dress it up a little bit here. Well, yeah, I don't know what the story is like. Do the natives give him a lycra, a purple jumpsuit in 1536? He makes it out of banana leaves, I bet, for a, for a, for 400 years. Bengala must have some kind of stretchy purple plant that he's leveraging for this. You're a stretchy purple plant. Uh, your mom's a stretchy purple plant. Your mom was a stretchy purple plant when she had you. Um, the other thing the Phantom has, and I remember this from the Billy Zane movies, he's got two rings. He's got the good mark on one hand and the evil mark. Oh, so he hits you with the evil mark, but if you're good, he hits you with the good mark? Maybe he just kind of like like gives you a, a noogie with it, like mm. a, a, an affectionate... Because, yeah, he does have one for his buddies, you know, like... Um, his mountain wolf sidekick devil, his stallion hero. He's got a Falcon. He's got Diana with the UN waiting for him in New York. What? He punches a Falcon and a horse and a dog. I'm not saying he f- punches it, but maybe he just like a signet ring. He's like, but with his enemies, no, you're right. He will literally make sure they catch the, um, and then they have a little skull on their chin for the rest of their It's the mark of the Z like Zora. There's some later lore in, uh, according to the internet, the internet tells me there's some later lore in phantom comics where, um, it's revealed that the evil, the ring of the evil mark actually comes from the Roman emperor Nero, you know, a, mm. a kind of a twisted guy who actually had it made 
from the nails that crucified Christ. Damn. I mean, that kind of stuff does not happen in Apartment 3G <laughs> or uh, uh, Blondie. And I'm just trying to imagine the pygmies that found that washed up on a beach and were like, hey, Phantom, look what we found. <laughs> like, how did it get there? If you're like us, you love to dig in and do your research. You're not afraid of homework, and you have definitely fallen down some pretty deep Reddit wormholes, am I right? But if your search for the right people for your company is coming up dry, there's a resource you haven't tapped into yet. If you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is a hiring partner that gets you what you really want. A short list of quality candidates as fast as possible. Because you can do it all. Attract, interview, and hire all at Indeed. Indeed is an unbelievably powerful hiring partner, where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't struggle on your own to find quality candidates. Indeed can help you hire the right people right now. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process so you can find talent with the skills you need through tools like Indeed Instant Match assessments, and virtual interviews. Indeed makes it easier for star applicants to shine with over 135 assessment tests from cooking to coding. Pick what skills are important to you from over 135 assessments and get a clear view of your top talent's abilities faster. Assessments make the interview process smoother for everyone. Talent doesn't need to prove themselves again, and you can dive deeper into talking about what's important to you. With Indeed Assessments, you can reduce hiring time by 12%, according to Indeed data worldwide. Get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Omnibus. That's get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Omnibus. Indeed.com slash Omnibus. Offer valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Nobody in the future or indeed in the present will remember this, but the fandom became a massive... 90s kids will. <laughs> if you watch Defenders of the Earth and Billy Zane. No, I think all those 90s movies failed, actually. <laughs> like... Surprisingly, the kids did not want to see Dick Tracy updated for the modern day with a with 58-year-old Warren Beatty as the lead. Um, but in the 40s, man, they couldn't get enough of it. There were a series of novels and there were um, movie serials. You know, you'd go to see the Phantom fight crime before your, your Western started on Saturday afternoon. Um, and this continued throughout the... I mean, in the 20th, as the 20th century wore on, Bengala got modernized and was now kind of a forward-looking African nation. I mean, not Wakanda, but with a a democratic, um, you know, uh, democratic, pre democratically elected president. Right. Um, you know, not a Mobutu style dictator, but a reformer who the fandom has to protect because assassins want to kill, um, president Mbenda or whatever it is. Right. Because he's, uh, he's the, he's the last great hope of Africa, yes. president Mbenda. Or back then he's the first great hope of Africa. I don't know how, well, I don't what know year, what the dates what years are. are we talking about? Uh, this is early 60s. I'm sure. It's oh, okay. A, so the, early 60s, it would have been. Yeah. But by this time, he's fighting off communists, right? That's probably right. who the Phantom is leaving the evil mark on. Right. It's communists. Maybe they don't say it, but it's, you know, overseas saboteurs. Oh, that's it. That's it. Overseas saboteurs. Saboteurs. That's the kind of thing that these pulp guys are always of course. all head up about. I'm still upset about saboteurs. I mean, you've They're got, blowing up railway bridges. Well, I mean, if I have an air conditioner, I don't want a saboteur. If I own a grill, I don't want a saboteur. Nope. 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 Um, and the fandom becomes big worldwide. Like to this day, there's a hit, there's a, a, a successful magazine in Sweden called Fantomen, which is kind of there much as they Scrooge McDuck continues to have a mix of reprinted and local Swedish adventures in the pages of a hit monthly. I guess the phantom also has that status in Scandinavia. So worldwide by worldwide, do you often just mean Scandinavia or is the yeah. phantom? <laughs> yeah. What do you mean? No, no, this is going to be, as we'll see, this is truly a global Story. There's an Umberto Eco novel called The Queen. What's this book called? 
the queen, mysterious flame of Queen Lawana, which is kind of about his, even though he's the greatest, you know, intellectual of his day, he's writing books about his love, his childhood love for the pulps. Yeah, and it's the, just like George Will in baseball. Basically, yeah, yeah. That's in Europe, you don't have baseball. Right. So Maybe, yeah. <laughs> some of these guys are into soccer, but that seems a bit hooligan y. So instead, they get really weirdly into Donald Duck. I'm hoping that writing about dumb things from your childhood actually can make your reputation as an intellectual because I haven't written any great treatises on philosophy or psychology yet. So, but I am hoping to start writing books about time for your book about star Wars and Coda. Yeah. That could happen. I mean, that's, that's what the people want I mean, today. these days. Right. Who are the intellect, the great intellectuals. So echo loved the phantom and basically, you know, built a novel around his love for, for the phantom in Turkey when it was, it was miscolored in the paper or in the comics. So the, um, he was orange. He's red. Wow. So the phantom is still to this day called the red mask in, uh, Turkey because they couldn't afford purple after the Ottoman Empire collapsed or something. They lost the blue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, where'd it go? <laughs> but most interestingly, the Phantom is a uh, big part of the culture of Papua New Guinea, a place that has never been on the omnibus before, to my knowledge, but is lies just to the north of Australia. And feels very much like the location of the original Phantom. Bingo. Well, nobody can hear this, but I am pointing at you with a, you the, the, the business end of a ballpoint you pen. Were ex- you excitedly pointed at me. That's exactly right. The, the, the Phantom was, um, you know, came to uh, New Guinea. Is uh, he a part of a cargo cult? <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Whoa. This is kind of a Prince Philip movement sequel now that I think about it. Yeah. Except that he, unlike Prince Philip, he's real. No, sorry. Unlike <laughs> Prince Philip, he's a, re- he's a fictional... <laughs> Character in World War II, the American servicemen uh, fighting to liberate um, were in New Guinea, trying to f- liberate the island from the Japanese. Um, and in fact, Lee Falk was called upon to produce propaganda material specifically about, you know, the liberation of, you know, the Phantom's tropical milieu from right. um, evil Japatours or whatever awful slur right. they would oh, have Oh, of used. course, all that stuff. There's always a phase of it. Of Bugs Bunny or yeah, Superman. Where or, they're fighting the Japanese. Exactly. Or the Nazis. So Lee Falk had this, um, was working on this propaganda stuff that was actually about the liberation of New Guinea. And that kind of planted New, New this. New Guinea, Guinea. <laughs> right. Well, the whole island of New Guinea, it's half Papua New Guinea and half an, an Indonesian right. province called Iria and Java. But in the. It's called it, the Dominican Republic. Right. The other yeah. side is, it's the Dominican Republic of Australasia, <laughs> basically. <laughs> Uh, the, um, so that, that kind of planted the seed for a love of the Phantom such that it was later reprinted for the rest of the 20th century there, both in English and the newspaper strip would be in English or in uh, the local Creole, uh, talk piscine. I don't know if I'm saying mm-hmm. that right. Yeah. Probably. We we have, have we not s- talked about talk piscine in the omnibus before, is this, I feel is like this going to be a is this going to be an entry. No, it's one. Oh, maybe it will. It's one of those things that we've been talking about this a lot lately. Like we do so. Ma- the whole point of doing omnibus was that we it was a place for us to put all of our deep dives. But I keep doing deep dives and maybe not putting them in the omnibus. And so I'm so I'm texting you in the middle of the night. Like, have we talked about talk piscine? What's up or, with talk piscine? Or was that just a thing I was yelling at somebody about in a bar? <laughs> and as you point out, it's easy to see why the you know the next two or three generations of Papua New Guineans. I don't know what New Guineans. I don't know what the demonym mm-hmm. is. Are they Papuans or are they New Guineans? Papua New Guineans. I mean, it wouldn't kill me to get this right. They, they might be just Guineans. Uh, the indigenous people are often called Papuans. So maybe you should not be calling all of the all of the citizens Papuans. Who me? I wasn't, I wasn't maybe doing one, it. Sorry. <laughs> maybe one should. So the indigenous people are called say, Papuans. You, you just say Papua New Guineans. So these generations of Papua New Guinean kids, whether they spoke English or the New Guinean Creole, would read his adventures in the paper, and there weren't that many strips that made it over. These were all just rehash strips. They weren't still making them no, I, there? I they, think they got... I think they got a mix of old and new. Like they they weren't just showing the 40 strips over and over, but maybe it was the kind of thing where there's a, they're always 15 years behind or something. And as you point out, this is a guy who has tropical jungle adventures. You know, unlike all the other superheroes that live in a city which looks nothing like where you're from if you're a Papua New Guinean kid, this guy hangs out in a in a jungle, a and- weird pan-Asian, pan-Indian Ocean locale that kind of looks like your place. Maybe you don't have Skull Cave, but you wish you did. Yeah. And uh, actually, a lot of those islands do have skull caves. Oh, is that right? Yeah, it's a feature. I know King Kong does. Mm-hmm. 
There you go. See, two out of two islands surveyed. And uh, crucially, he's friends with the natives. I mean, now this is one of the things that doesn't age well about the strip because it's got this kind of uh, condescending attitude toward the locals. But if you're a kid growing up there, there's like people of color in this strip. Right. Like Who are heroic. Yeah. yeah, Friendly. Exactly. And he's, and he like, here's a superhero that would hang out with you, a Melanesian kid, you know, which you're not going to get from, from a Superman movie or a James Bond movie. Was this part of a colonial project that uh, was trying to encourage uh, Papo and yeah. kids, uh, if, yeah, the they found, if they found a blonde woman on the beach, <laughs> they should bring her to the nearest police station. <laughs> yeah. The CIA was absolutely planting this in, uh, in, uh, local papers to, just, you know, a bulwark against the domino theory as goes Papua New Guinea. So goes Asia, I That's guess. Right. Um, the original domino, but the interesting thing about the Papua New Guinea love affair with, um, the phantom kind of begins in the eighties and nineties when there starts to be tribal violence in the mm-hmm. Western highlands, you know, the different little Melanesian tribes up in the mountains. So they're pretty, they're not set in the Lees remote, but they're pretty remote and they start getting into, um, you know, there have long been arguments over women or over land or over accuse accusations of theft. Um, and the traditional means of battle there is very shield heavy. You, the warriors carry a big shield. Oh, right. Um, I'm sure originally out of some kind of, um, originally out of some kind of tough wood, but, you know, more recently out of surplus sheet metal or something. Right. Another, and uh, one more thing to make 50 gallon drums into. Right. It's as tall as you. Um, and, you know, originally it would have kind of in, in ochre paints, local pigments, it would have nature designs, you know, butterflies and whatnot. And it would, it would, it was not just a, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, this is ritualized combat. So it's also a symbol of protection for the warrior himself, but also for his family, for his community, for the whole village, for the whole tribe. So these things had kind of a talismanic, um, you know, like a cargo cult um, uh, uh, sacred thing. Right. Relic. There's got to be yeah, a better. Like talisman. A, like a cargo cult relic. It would have. Icon. Yeah. It would have kind of iconic import. Idol. To the village. Yeah. I don't know if, you know, I don't know if they're worshipped, but yeah. Um, and in particular, the warriors of the Wagi tribe, um, they want strong protective emblems on their shields. And at some point, they switch from, you know, butterflies and, uh, you know, whatever their flowers, whatever their kind of traditional iconography is. Nothing protects a warrior like flowers. What if, instead of flowers, John, it was a purple buff, body-suited jungle dweller. Wow. I mean, that would be a pretty good thing to put on a shield, right? Right. If I were coming through the jungle attacking a neighboring tribe and all of a sudden life-size shields covered with the phantom all appeared around me as though I were being attacked by 50 phantoms? It appears as if this was all, I don't know, I don't know if this is all the work or if this is just one largely influential artist, but there was one guy named Kaipel Ka who kind of lived in a remote part of... um, Papua New Guinea, who had a sign painting business. He had, you know, his, his he got a roadside sign, which is the the hood of a, the hood piece of a Toyota Stout, kind of a mini Hilux, mm-hmm. um, which he's painted with, a, you know, uh, his his contact details and his sign painting business. He hung out his shingle, and when you if you open a a store to sell Fanta or whatever up there, this is the guy uh, that would no paint relation. all your sign. Exactly. <laughs> this is not no uh, Phantom, not Phantom. No, that's not product placement at all. Um, and he's he's really good. Like I, I was watching a video about this guy's work, and he can just paint anything. Like uh, eventually, he gets so big that he um, Western collectors and galleries, kind of in the manner of the Afghan battle rugs right. that have been on the omnibus before, Western galleries and museums and collectors start to hear about this kind of bizarre jungle iconography and they there's a big market in these now so you know he'll uh, he'll paint shields with um with the phantom or with coca-cola iconography um often when these tribes made peace they would share a coke and what? so come on are you tweeting at coke too trying to get a free t-shirt coke's not going to give me a free t-shirt everybody knows what coke is so, so the tribes would make peace, and they would come together. It's recently I've recently, beca- I've recently become aware of like if you had a childhood in West Africa or something, like what a like what an annual treat like a grape Fanta or a right. or a bottle of Coke would have been, you know, right? Like you would save that for weeks if you got a Coke on Christmas. It's like the first Big Mac that arrived in Arad, Romania. 
that's exactly what it is. It's um it's been designed by foreign colonizers to just overwhelm your senses with salt and fat. And Coke and Fanta are the same way. Like you will, you know, this is your month's supply of sugar in one fizzy bottle. Oh, it'll blow your mind. If, if it's going to have a, a mouthfeel you've never had before sure, in your fizz village. And the syrup and the, I mean, wow. all, all the stuff that's in every Coke commercial about oh, what an experience. Like that's actually true. If you, if you live in Ghana and get one of these a year. I mean, know? it's kind of true for me. When was the last time you had a Fanta? <laughs> oh, man. It's, it's still pretty exciting. I look forward to my afternoon Diet Coke so oh, much. Know you do. Like you an, know, we, an unhealthy amount. The uh, the the Futurelings may not know this, but we here at uh, The Bunker keep a half rack of Diet Dr. Pepper for Ken. We've only recently started refrigerating them. They used to be- It's pretty fancy now. Warm, and now they're crisp, crispy oh, cold. Man. I can taste it already, and mm-hmm. this is only the first show we're doing today. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so it's, it looks like pop art, this, this amazing stuff this guy's producing. Because he's got, you know, he's got these, you know, two um, natives wearing ceremonial headdresses clinking Coke together, and it'll have the Coke logo, and it will say, you know, the peacemaker or something. And you can see why oh. any Soho gallery sure. worth its salt. Oh, I want that in my, in my downtown loft. I know, right? <laughs> um, and the, but the, it was legit. The tribes were legitimately going to war, and then later negotiating peace and hanging in their in their sacred huts. Um, shield, big five foot tall shields with the phantom painted on them in some crime busting pose, and a and an exciting biff bam pow. Um, like uh, Roy Lichtenstein. Uh... It totally looks like a Lichtenstein, except it's coming from Kaipel Kaz. Stand. He he uh, sadly passed away in, of cancer in two thousand eight, which kind of I think ended the business of um, of the phantoms kind of informal representation of the ru- of rural Papua New Guinea. But only made those shields worth more money. Uh, exactly. This is, this is like collectors getting excited when every time your daughter rips up some Marvel Tales reprint of a, of a Stanley Spider-Man comic. Mm-hmm. But I just love stories like this of uh, some little bit of Western, I don't know, maybe it's awful colonialism, but it seems a pretty benign kind of some bizarre bit of Western detritus catching on in some totally unexpected part of the world. It, I mean, it goes, it, maybe it's not colonialism because it goes the other way too. You know, uh, Jerry Lewis catching on in France in a more highbrow way than it does here. Uh-huh. Or are there musical examples of this? Like, um, what's the, what's the quintessential music industry example of the, the one song that's suddenly everybody in Japan or Madagascar is, well, is the, singing. That's a thing, right? The, yeah. The opposite way is, is Gangnam style. The first time that, sure. uh, that a tune from Asia really blew the, the the West apart. I wonder if over there that was like, I wonder if they were like, boy, what a ra- of all the great K-pop or all the great culture of Korea, that's a, the weirdest thing to take over. Is, yeah, I wonder. Is this one song, or if they were like, of course, Gangnam Style, that's the best we have to offer. <laughs> I'm trying quintessential to, Korea. Trying to think of bands that, I mean, it, my experience in touring in France and and what I understand about Japan is that they do pick often random bands to to turn into like the example of a great american band like the bands that the french think are the coolest american pop bands are not bands that you would think are the cool ones but the french don't know or maybe they prefer that it's like kind of under the radar it's a jerry lewis thing i think they're just like oh this is a incredible but the jerry lewis music. thing is that this speaks to the french soul in a way that it never could to you the american <laughs> right like isn't there something of that well yeah and i think that may be true of their rock and roll too like oh you could do not you, you do not appreciate uh, what you are making can, can i just end with my favorite example <laughs> of this phenomenon our apologies to the French futurelings, who probably speak like that, actually. The, fr- the French will not survive. Their accents uh, evolved. The French will not survive. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you surrender to a meteor or not. You're kind of like a Pepe Le Pew. Yeah, I don't know what I'm doing there. You're doing the Monty Python guy, yeah. right? I speak in your general direction. I'm not doing a good job of it. Sometimes <laughs> I'm pretty good. Do you think it's less or more offensive that your offensive accent is bad? Does that double back and make it okay? I feel like... I feel like there are times when my John Cleese derived foreign accents are really on point, and sometimes I'm I, I'm doing a poor job. It's more like I'm doing uh, Bob Odenkirk's foreign accents, which are universally terrible. I just got the COVID booster today, and I feel like it's making my foreign accents better. Oh well, that's, well let's let you handle that's, that. That's what Bill Gates is doing to me. Um, my favorite example of this phenomenon happened in uh, 2008. Um, do you remember? Of course, you don't. The early 90s. 
cheapo Canadian international co-production television hour called Tropical Heat. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> this was a... You're uh, absolutely right that there is no way I would know I've actually it. seen this because my family was living, living in Singapore in the early 90s. And when I would go home, it's exactly the kind of weird thing that would show on an English language station in a kind of a random part of the world. This this show, it was about some... It was some cheapo post-Miami Vice mm-hmm. kind of um, a roguish... Uh, Canadian guy. I, I don't know if he was supposed to be Canadian, but the, a roguish Canadian guy. Talk the, about an oxymoron. Yeah, exactly. I don't know how convincing Canadian actor Rob Stewart was as um, as roguish uh, tropical adventurer Nick Slaughter. Nick Slaughter. But he was always getting into trouble in beautiful locales, which were basically the thing was shot wherever they could get tax breaks. Like it was in Mexico one season, then it was in Israel the next season, then it was in like Mauritius or something. Like basically wherever they could shoot for nothing and hire crew for nothing. Um. And uh, here, I think in the U.S., it actually did air like late at night in like CBS had some crime time after prime time block where they would air a rotating That's array of, of these of these just awful, cheesy post Miami Vice shows. And I think this show knew it was kind of cheesy. You know, it, it was kind of a wise cracking. Yeah. I mean, guy. Nick Slaughter, it's right in the. He probably has a cockatoo and a, you know, there's a different beautiful woman in every show, but I think they know their Baywatch basically. Yeah. Um, and it's for an international audience. Um, oh, that's a perfect example of what you were saying before. Yeah, exactly. Baywatch. Exactly. Yeah. Or in the nineties, mid nineties in Europe, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I mean, I know that was a hit show here too, Yeah. but um, you could not go to Europe in the nineties without people asking you if you knew Will Smith and Carlton and how they were doing and do they, do they live in your neighborhood and. Interesting that I was in Europe quite a bit in the 90s and no one ever asked me if I knew Will Smith. I did get asked I if I knew Bill Clinton. I don't think you give off the vibe. See, you have, you give off a different vibe. Sure, that's right. You're, I look like a cop. You're like, I'm hanging out with Bill Clinton and people look at me, a man of the people, and they're like, hey, what's um, yeah, I'm going to what's live Will with, Smith going? I'm going to live with my auntie in Washington, D.C. Ken looks like he might be from West Philadelphia, <laughs> right? Right? <laughs> Unbeknownst to anybody who made Tropical Heat, the show is becoming a huge hit in Serbia in the 1990s. Okay. I think Serbia was under UN embargo, so it was a pretty bleak time there. Right. And maybe that limited their access to Western media, but they could get this weird Canadian-Israeli co-production or whatever it was. Um, something about the you know the lush tropical setting appealed to to Serbs. bleak war-torn Serbs. I mean, not bleak people in bleak war-torn Serbia. Right. I'm not going to say the people are bleak. No, there are some um, bleak people in Serbia, but not all Serbs are bleak. In particular, they loved Rob Stewart's character of Nick Slaughter with his, you know, roguish grin and his devil-may-care quip for any adi- for any situation. If you think back to the Bosnian War, the Serbs really did think of themselves as well, he, roguish, quipping Canadians. Well, here's the thing. I hope <laughs> this is not revisionist history. Apparently, he became a symbol of the the youth movement, like the anti-Milosevic resistance oh. to the to the nationalistic government and in particular the war in Bosnia. Whoa. So hopefully Nick Slaughter is on the right side of history because uh young people uh adopt him as kind of a symbol and Nick Slaughter for president graffiti starts appearing in the streets of, of Belgrade. Whoa, did young Serbians paint him on their shield? <laughs> it's the equivalent of the Phantom Shields. Yeah. yeah. Whoa. Um And these people literally, like, he was an icon to them. The same way, you know, hippies would have put Frodo lives or Clapton is God on a wall. These people were all about Nick Slaughter and his his tropical cabana or or, uh, boat rental agency or whatever the hell Nick Slaughter owns. Is there a, is there a, a, it feels very familiar to me as though in recent times in America, there's been a political movement that has co-opted some kind of... Pepe the Frog? Yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> that That's it, right? He's our roguish, <laughs> grinning Canadian <laughs> amphibian overlord. Pepe the Frog. I think that happens pretty often Feels now. Feels good, man. The, well, I mean, the Babadook is now a, a queer icon for um, reasons I don't fully understand. It's because of that one meme of the girl that dressed as the Babadook that went to the, <laughs> the Halloween, Halloween party. party and no one else was. Suddenly, so it's not the Babadook, it's an outsider dressed as the Babadook? I think it's just that one girl that had that terrible picture where she was like, I'm at this party and no one turns, else wore a costume. It turns out it's more of a grown-ups drinking wine vibe. <laughs> I'm such a good meme. It makes me laugh even now. But you know who Only 2,000 you know kids who had, get had, You know who had not heard about um, the Nick Slaughter revival of serbia is nick slaughter nick slaughter actor rob stewart nor indeed any of the makers of the tv show tropical heat which had you know you're kidding folded long ago and nick slaughter's doing community theater in uh, uh, uh 
Sudbury, Ontario. Or He's whatever. the Prince Philip of uh, of Serbia. <laughs> he is alarmed to find himself the Prince Philip of Serbia, and I think he's he's um he looks up something else related to his character name on Facebook, trying to see if there's any fan groups, and is just stunned in 2008 that he has been for over a decade a symbol of the youth movement of Serbia. He had no idea. He had no idea for, for over a decade. Years. Yeah. So what, oh my God. what's the first thing you would do? Uh, buy a plane ticket, right? Of course. <laughs> right? Call, call your agent and be like, what have you been doing? It's basically the end of Spinal Tap, where the band is broken up and then it's like, good news, lads, we're going to Japan. Yeah. Um, and that's exactly what happens. He gets on a plane and flies to Serbia. I think he gets a documentary crew to be like, this is going to be fun. Uh, I don't know if the documentary ever came out, but you know there are just thousands at the airport to greet him and wherever he goes, wow. it's you know people are reaching out their hands so that he can heal their afflictions you know like do you think there's a ken jennings cult like boiling somewhere right now probably in ontario frankly <laughs> that's the thing like jeopardy doesn't play in that many markets but it's so huge in canada because of the not, oh right the alex trebek the alex trebek connection and the fact that they're smarter than us but I mean, <laughs> between those two things jeopardy is a disproportionately big sure, hit the winters are long and they entertain themselves with trivia so i would love the idea that i just show up in halifax or Brampton, Ontario, or, or someplace. You need to stop uh, besmirching Canadian baseball fans. <sighs> that's true. Okay, that's my resolution. For, no for more 2022. snark about the Blue Jays. Canada, I love you. Even your awful drunken fans. <laughs> and that concludes The Phantom of New Guinea. Entry 928.IS0117. Certificate number 24126 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, please take the opportunity to go on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and start a cult based around me. There's a lot of fuel to throw on the fire. I would love it so much if it turned out at some point in my late middle age if to find out that honduras is super into you yeah or or moldova they got nothing going on there and i've all i've i've raised their profile considerably by including them so many times in the omnibus i feel like it never works if we try if we keep trying oh, to mention yeah. how cool moldova is yeah. um like all this the, all this phantom stuff just happened unaware in the shadows same with nick mayor nick slaughter right well but but you know the phantom stuff happened because uh, because a jungle island environment was in the background, and out in the background of of our show is uh, the multi tentacled, um, sentient moss of the future. They will love that we mention them. Like they're going to watch other twenty first century entertainment, and they're going to be like, uh, "Why do Rachel and Ross never talk about algae people?" <laughs> it's true. The, the 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 cargo cults about us are going to be a thousand years in the future. That's okay. Yeah, that's fine. Hi, everyone. And, and definitely search for your social media. Exists, search for your own name. Like, make right. sure you're not a hidden Namibia and just have been there you go. omitting all that sweet Namibia revenue. Future Namibia for for years. Um, that's right. And you can search for us to learn more about us in the past that we were real people and not just your godheads. At Ken Jennings at John Roderick. Uh, you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail dot com. You can ask for more information about our personal lives. Among the slightly hyped up um, super fans over on uh, the Futurelings, wherever the internet is available. Facebook or Reddit or Discord. You can support our show uh, by contributing monetarily at patreon.com slash omnibus project. This is important because Moldova is not stepping up so far. If you've been listening to the show for a long time and you love these outros, even though our uh, I've heard recently that our outro music plays over the entire outro. I believe that's true. And that some people find it grating. Um, if that's true, write to Ken at theomnibusproject at gmail.com and we'll, we'll take a poll. We should have a, um, a Patreon tier where you get a version of the show with no grating music, guaranteed. Um, but if you've listened all these years and every time we say patreon.com slash omnibus project, you go, hmm, I should probably do that one of these days. Make today the day. You know what today is almost certainly? One of these days. It is. If you look at a calendar, it has to be. Think about these days. They've been, they've been stacking up until now. 
Make today the day. Take the SE off of your litter sweater and throw it in the garbage. <laughs> and you can mail us real darn things at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Listeners, from our vantage point here in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived before we all just moved back into the rainforest and began hitting each other with shields with Bart Simpson's face on them. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come, but if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be on final But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>